Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Ryan O'Connor. Hello, Ryan. Hello. Hi. In case you uh, can't get any connect, this is my second son. Hi. We started having a conversation. I've, I've got to give a bit of background here. So Ryan and I get on the phone and we have these long, rambling, philosophical discussions about every topic under the sun. Mm. And the topic that came up the other week that I said we need to do a podcast on this is about kindness. Mm. I've seen a lot of posts on Facebook and stuff talking about being kind to people and people Mm. being unkind to each other and we should all just be kind to each other. But there's a point where if somebody's behaving poorly or inappropriately, at what point do you say, okay, that's not enough? And how is that being unkind? That was kind of where we got to with the conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because there's there's obviously a lot there. It's something that people have been arguing about since ancient Greece. But it's relevant right now, isn't it? Because everyone seems to be arguing about whether we should do things for ourselves and do what we want to do for us, or whether we should do things that we don't want to do for everyone else. And, you know, there's this whole kind of vitriol and and argument about I don't want to be forced to do something for people I don't know we should reopen the economy and just let people die you know at what point should I care about strangers and not myself is suffering a little bit in a lot of people better than suffering a lot in a smaller number of people and does the fact that the people who are suffering are poor come into that equation If the people who were suffering were the really, really rich, would we still be having this discussion? Not even considered that last bit. Socioeconomics of philosophy, here we come. (laughs) So, because what you were saying then about people saying you're infringing my human rights and I don't want to do this or whatever, Mm. are the same people who are saying be kind to others. And there seems to be a real hypocrisy in the way people are acting. And going back a couple of paces, I saw an article that differentiated between being kind and being nice. Mm. And we've actually, as a society, we tend to mix the two things up. So if you're a nice person, you're a kind person. And nice isn't actually that nice, really. Yeah, I think I think that is the problem. N- niceness is is equated with being kind. When I think um, kindness isn't certainly isn't always nice. Anyone who's been a parent, I'm sure, knows the difference between being nice and being kind. Because you can be nice to a three year old as much as you like, but while it's nice to give them a kilogram of dark chocolate or you know white chocolate, kids don't like dark chocolate, do they? Kilogram of white chocolate, it's not very kind long term. I think niceness is, is a kind of, of politeness, a tolerance of, you know, the existence of other people's opinions and, and telling them that their opinion is relevant and, and should exist and can exist. Whereas a kindness is, um, 
much more about dealing with the consequences of decisions, uh, a shared social contract, I think. I, I remember ages ago somebody said to me that there's compassion and then there's ruthless compassion. And somebody said I was the embodiment of ruthless compassion because it was all about regardless of what was going on, I was going to be a stand for that person to do the right thing by themselves. Mm. And that to me is the difference between being nice and being kind. I don't think it's kind to let people behave in a way that is ultimately going to uh, harm them, which is exactly what you're saying about letting a three-year-old eat a kilo of chocolate. They quite happily eat a kilo of chocolate. As you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not good for them. And that's the thing, I think. When you talked about, you know, the, the, the whole argument that's going on nowadays, and, and let's, let's, let's focus on the two big issues, I think, which are the lockdowns and the vaccinations. Um, are really the the key issues in Australia at the moment, um, because people say we we sh- we should we shouldn't be doing them, um, which is just a weird stance to be taking, honestly. But you know, there's a, a place that I drive past on my way to the shops that has a nice big banner called "Reignite Democracy" on it, right? And we drove past it. For a couple of weeks, and every time we passed, I was like, I wonder what that means. And Joe, my partner, uh, for for the audience, Joe said, um, it sounds like a cult. And I said, well, yes, it does sound like a cult. But now I want to know what they, they're about even more now. And so I looked them up eventually. And 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 they, they are cult-like in, in a lot of their things. And they use a lot of buzzwords like reignite and democracy and rights and consent and things like that. But the, but the the... It boils down to the fact that they are really in the market for anarchic individualism, uh, which for those of us who haven't done first or second year philosophy at university means that uh, they want to be able to do whatever they want to do for themselves and everyone else can go get stuffed because obviously we shouldn't have to worry about the needs of the many because we're all individuals and we all know what's best for us. The government shouldn't be able to tell us to do things like have a vaccination, go into lockdown, pay taxes, you know, things like that. And it, it's a really big trend to feel that way right now. I mean, we can particularly see it in America. Let's be honest. The uh, the right to bear arms is a particular, you know, microcosm of this particular issue. But um, it's really come to the fore with the idea of vaccinations and lockdowns. Because rather than it being this kind of nebulous, I'm allowed to do what I want to do until such time as a crisis arises. Now we're in a crisis that affects everyone. And it's suddenly a choice between I want to do what I want to do or I want to do what I don't want to do in order to save people. So you you get your own selfish needs slash somebody else die and doing what's right for everyone and and fewer people die. Not, Not no people die, fewer people die. And it's shocking, shocking to see how many people say we should let them die. Isn't it? I, I think so, yeah. I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. And I haven't considered it from the point that you're saying. I remember where one of you four was quite young and you wanted something in a shop 
And I said no. And then Mm. we got in the car on the way home and lo and behold, there it was. And I said to this child, where did you get that? Oh, from the shop. Did you pay for it? No. So then we had a long conversation about theft and personal possessions because and the point I made was we just we'd been burgled a few months before and I said how did you feel when somebody came in our house and took our things and she said oh it was horrible I said but it's the same when you're taking something from that person's shop it's the same thing we can't go about doing these things because we wouldn't like it done to ourselves so you don't do it to somebody else And laws are there to protect the community, to make the community and society work to its best possible outcome for the greater good, basically. Hate to use that phrase, but it's for for the benefit of most people. Yeah. And to me, lockdown comes under that. And people go, oh, but the economy, what do we place more value on? Honestly, that was a little bit kinder than my immediate reaction to that, which is who cares about the economy? The rich? Look, again, and that's the thing. Look, we, the economy is, is super important, obviously. Um, is it more important than people's lives? It will still be here after COVID has passed that there is no doubt about that. The econ- economy is inevitable. It isn't some kind of thin veneer that we've stretched over the chaos surrounding us. It is it is a function of human life. It will still exist after COVID has passed. So people talking about destroying the economy, I think uh, are using a little bit too much in the way of exaggeration because it will still be there. You know, we've been going through one of the largest recessions in um, the history of the Western world over the past 30 years. The economy's not in a great place anyway. There's a larger pay gap in America uh, these days than there was in France immediately before the French Revolution. Like the world's economy isn't fantastic anyway. Why are we more interested in that than in people's lives? Which is a point that we keep coming back to. But what I do want to kind of point out is the problem with any philosophical argument when you start talking about individualism and stuff like that. And what you're saying about about kindness, I think, boils down to kindness comes from a place of knowing what's right and what's wrong, which is the problem with any philosophy. Because, you know, um, spoiler alert, listeners, we actually don't know anything. We don't know anything. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We we don't know what's right. We don't know what's wrong. None of us is omnipotent. Uh, All we're going to do is take a really good guess. And the people who are going to take the best guess are the people who are the most educated about this or the people who are um, have the most majority of opinion in the population. Right. That's how democracy works. Just going to put that one out there. But when it comes to a massive virus and things like that, I'm probably going to listen to doctors. Personally, I'm going to listen to what most people want to do. Uh, when it comes to to lockdowns. And let's be honest, most of the population uh, is in favour of lockdowns. Uh, If they weren't, we wouldn't be doing this. There are quite a large number of people who aren't. Don't get get me wrong, the riots are obviously a function of that. But the vast majority of people, I think, are in favour of them. And 
the vast majority of medical people are in favor of them and vaccinations as well. And talking about, I want to do things for me and not for others is fine as long as you can do it in a way that doesn't affect other people. I think that's really what it boils down to. You can definitely get a tattoo on your forehead if, if you want one, because that's only really going to affect you. But you're not going to be able to, to drag around a bag of arsenic with you to go into the shops because that's going to affect other people. And I think that's kind of what it is, isn't it? That's, that's really the argument here um, is do I exist in a bubble? Or do the things that I do affect anyone else? And I think a lot of people feel very disconnected. They, they feel like their existence is completely separate from the whole rest of the world. And we could talk about that for ages, I think, talking about the internet and, and the rise of um, social anonymity and a lack of value placed on the individual human life. But, you know, as much as they may talk about the fact that they matter, I think the argument that they're making comes from a place of that they don't matter, that nothing they do makes a difference. And um, it's a little bit sad, isn't it? What I was thinking of when you were talking was, one of the things I've noticed about the kinds of responses you get around COVID and lockdowns and immunizations and stuff is they're very emotive and they're very manipulative. So mm. if I go and read an article or I listen to something, if it's full of rhetoric and superlatives, I immediately just dismiss it as complete nonsense. <laughs> Fairly or unfairly. That's what I do because I want to, and I used to say this to you, Paul, tell me the what's so. Stop with the story. Tell me the what's so. And you tell me in as few words as possible and communicate what's on your mind. So mm. when you read all this emotional stuff, it sends alarm bells because if somebody's got to go into story and emotions and exaggerations and all the other stuff, all that rhetoric, then there should be a warning sign that what's being said probably isn't 100% true. Mm. I'm going to put it that way. Yeah. It's probably a half-truth, and that's the issue with a lot of the stuff. It's a half-truth that's been twisted. Yeah, and that's honestly that's been the case throughout human history. You can trace that back to my my brother and I, Jamie, the, the first son, we were talking about the Peloponnesian War, which happened 3,000 years ago, give or take. And the, th the three kinds of arguments, the, the pathos, which is emotional argument, logos, which is the, the logical argument, and ethos, which is the, the moral argument, they can all be traced back to then, back to Pericles and Cleon and, and you know, all the great speakers of ancient Greece. We're still having the same problem because... And I think that the media isn't helping very much here, but a, a conversation about Rupert Murdoch and what the world would be like without him in it is one that we can have another day. Take the, the sheer facts of it. I talk to uh, my granddad, your dad, the other weekend, and um, he was telling me about what things are like in the UK. The UK has a population roughly twice of Australia, which I was surprised to find out. I thought it was a little bit bigger than that. But... Our deaths of COVID are, uh, what, single digits, double digits uh, daily through the whole country. Oh, yeah. There's uh, triple digits 
sometimes reaching yeah. four digits. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that we have done, regardless of, of things like the, the distribution of the population, lack of social density, things like that, regardless, the things that we have done have helped. They have a vaccination rate of something like 70% of the population right it's now. Poor. It's about 90 now. They are still dealing with those deaths, regardless of vaccinations. And I do believe the vaccinations are the, the way forward. They certainly aren't the only way forward. Um, we'll need to do more than vaccinate. But lockdowns have helped us so much. And this is coming from a Victorian audience. This is coming from a Victorian. I have been in lockdown on and off for 18 months. I've been back to work for maybe three months of that, divided up into small bits, because we go into lockdown and then we wait a couple of weeks and then things slowly open. And I go back for a couple of weeks and then we lock down again. Like I know the problems of being in isolation and and quarantine and lockdown. And I would not trade them for freedom if freedom meant going through what the UK is going through. Uh, It's a very simple choice. And regardless of what the media may say and what the the emotional arguments that you may read on the internet, the facts are clear. They are very, very clear. The whole world is suffering and we have really dodged a bullet here. We have really dodged a bullet. And the fact that we are now at risk of relapsing into what they're seeing means that we should be willing to follow through with this. This is, this is a risky time. This is as risky now as it was back in the first few months when, when Melbourne got that massive spike. The, the rest of the country was fine. We suffered here. We did. But I don't think anyone here regrets it. You might read about how um, unpopular the Dan Andrews is in Victoria if you're outside of the state. I've seen that a lot. He's actually incredibly popular. He really is. Most of, most of my friends... Here in Victoria, we'll talk your ear off about how much they like Dan Andrews. Um, Let me just give a little bit of background there because about half of my listeners aren't in Australia. So Dan Andrews is the premier of Victoria in Australia and and Melbourne, which is the capital city of Victoria, has just celebrated its 200th day in lockdown. (laughs) So, yes. That's what Ryan's talking about. That's just to give everybody who's not Australian a little bit of background there. Yes, Dan Andrews, or Dandrews, as you may hear him referred to, is the one who made the tough decision to keep Melbourne in a complete lockdown. No leaving the house, curfews, five kilometre zones, four reason to leave. I'm in Geelong, which is not inside Melbourne. Uh, so I haven't been as, an under as complete a lockdown as, as that. But Kira, the, the third of the, the four O'Connor siblings, has been. She's been through the whole thing. And it's been tough. I think she spent her 21st birthday in lockdown. She just spent her 22nd birthday in lockdown. It's, it's a price that it's tough to pay, but that's better than however many dying. Um, How do you think, because these people, or the people who talk about individualism, and the rights of the individual, and talk about kindness. How do you correlate the two things? Because to me, being kind and compassionate involves me going into quarantine if I need to, wearing a mask if I need to, getting an immunisation if I need to. That's what kindness and compassion is Mm. to me. Mm. That 
lands for me as common sense. That's that's the morally right thing to do. In an individual, in somebody who talks about the rights of the individual or believes about the rights of the individual and, and all the rest of it, how does that correlate with kindness? And I, I'm actually trying to figure this out now. That's why I'm asking you. I, I have an answer, actually. I do have an answer. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, because, and, and here's, here's the, the, the real difference between talking about kindness, I think, is are you giving it or are you receiving it? The people who talk about kindness as in let me do what I want to do want kindness for themselves. Be kind to me. Like let's let's take a skinned knee as as an example. Everyone who's had children has had to deal with the whole skinned knee problem. It is by definition a surface problem. You will not die. Nothing will come of it. I have seen a hundred thousand skinned knees in my life, and no one has ever once been scarred by them. But they're a really big deal when you've got a skinned knee, and they want kindness. They don't want anything else. You want want a plaster or a kiss on the knee. A nice cool drink or a lollipop or something. But the only thing you can give them is kindness. That is very different from, let's say, a massive head injury for which you would need stitches, something to stop the bleeding, something to help the concussion, bed rest. That requires a very different kind of kindness, a kindness which is not kind or nice, because the main thing you will be told when you're really injured is stop moving. Don't look after yourself. Stay still. Stay awake. Don't do what you want to do. You've got to stop. It's a very controlling kind of kindness, but it's much clearer from the outside than it is from the inside. People who don't need help want kindness for kindness's sake. People who do need help need kindness in a way that is often unpleasant. I think that really kind of sums it up. Yeah, that's a really good analogy because I I remember reading something about if you're involved in a car crash, don't move or or you get knocked off a motorbike or a pushbike or something by a car. Your first Mm -hmm. reaction is to get up. You want to get up, but you shouldn't move in case you've got spinal injuries. So they have to try and keep you still, like don't move, stop moving. That's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of of metaphors we could use. The, The one that comes most easily to mind is when a plane crashes, or falls from the sky and the oxygen masks come down, the rule is put yours on before you put anyone else's on. Um, because our instinct with kindness is to show people that we care. That's what kindness, kindness kind of come to mean. I think that's what they mean by niceness, is showing that we care. But it's not as functional under circumstances like that. You need to make sure that you are able to be kind before you be kind. So you put your mask on before anyone else's mask. But couldn't that be used to justify taking care of yourself first? I mean, it could, uh, but that's a, that's. I think that's what the difference is. They don't want to be taken care of. They want to be free to do what they want to do. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the, putting the mask on is, and the reason I use the metaphor is because when you're in a plane crash and you're surrounded by your loved ones, your first instinct will not be to put your mask on first. You will have to fight that instinct because if you put yours on and then you put someone else's on, you will have done what people won't want to do. They'll want to take care of their children. You felt that instinct yourself, I'm sure. Deal with the kids first. Deal with the loved ones first. That's a hard instinct. It sounds much, much simpler on the surface. 
but it's very, very hard to look after yourself before looking after other people from a certain perspective. And I think that's the difference between a real problem. And, I, and I, that's, that's what the lockdown is. You have to look after yourself. You have to make sure that you are safe for other people, not doing whatever you want to do. Yeah. Why do you think there is such a rise in the popularity of individualism? Let's call it that. And the thing the thing that really annoys me is they talk about, oh, just be yourself. I want to be 100% individual. I'm talking about certain people here. That's what I'm saying. They, because I do have them in mind. But they look like clones. They're saying the same things. I'm going, but I'm an individual. I'm 100% myself. You can also be an individual and still be part of a society that functions. It's not about homogeneity, but that wasn't where I was going. That was a bit of an aside, and I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. Why do you think there's such a rise in that individuality thing at the moment? I think in order to understand it, you need to understand two things. Uh, The first is I don't think there has really been a rise in individualism. It might be louder than normal, but I think people now are the same as people have always been. So the difference isn't that people are more individualistic than they've ever been. It's just that there's a current culture that encourages that opinion. Because the second thing you need to understand is that people are like a bell curve, right? Most people are in the normal end of the bell curve. Like that's, that's a much, you know, kind of higher proportion of the population are exactly the same. You'll see them all over the place. People who follow the same normal trends, they're sheep. And that's actually a good thing. We're a society for a reason. Sheep isn't about, like people say, sheeple, or that's bad. We're kind of supposed to do that. By doing that, we become a, a stronger population for it. By showing each other how to act, you, you're bringing all of the strengths together. That's, that's kind of what we want. Because the people who are really individuals, let's be honest, the people who are crazy, the people who are really, really weird, the people you avoid in the street are the real individuals. There's maybe one in a hundred who are the people who are just so weird. You will avoid them. And they're the individuals. We don't actually like individuals. We tend to avoid individuals because, you know, they'll, they'll be at either end of the bell curve. Some of them will be really individualistic and some of them will be really, really social. But overall, the people that we like are exactly like everyone else and just a tiny little bit different. That's all we need. We just need a little bit of difference. And I think the reason that a lot of people seem individualistic right now is because a couple of the crazier people, maybe not super crazy, but closer to the normal kind of average, have started to make it cool to be individualistic. And so everyone wants to be individualistic. Look at me. Look at how important I am. Look at how individual my opinions are. I'm so special. No one's ever understood me. No one's ever felt what I'm feeling right now. We've all been teenagers. And it's uh, individualism is, is a fun idea. That's fun. What a, what, a, what a great idea, champ. You pat on the head, get back to the playground because we're not individuals. A human being cannot survive on their own. If you isolated a human being, like, they, they die. Hermits are rare for a really specific reason. We're monkeys. We really are monkeys in in a lot of ways, but we need other people around us and we need to do, therefore, what is best for everyone. 
And we decide what is best for everyone by picking up on the opinions of everyone else. So if someone, let's say just completely random personality, if we chose a rather large orange blonde man to govern one of the largest countries in the world, and he says, everyone should be able to do what they want to do because I want to do what I want to do. And therefore that's a natural thing. Then a lot of people are going to say, yes, I believe that. I've always believed that we should be able to do what we want to do, regardless of how it impacts other people, because there's a little bit of a teenager in everyone. And a lot of other people will have grown out of the teenage phase and been like, you know what? Actually, I don't think that really works. But it doesn't really stop that, that pull, that pull, that's paradoxical trend for uh, <laughs> a social individualism. I hadn't connected the behaviour with being teenage, but it is mm. very, it's, it's always landed for me as immature. Because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about teenagers mm. because, uh, well, firstly, I think that people think about teenagers in a way that is very reductive because psychologically speaking, you are an adult from about 16. You have all of the capacity from about 15 or 16 of, of, a, of an adult human. Uh, you are capable of functioning with one tiny difference. You have no experience of the world, none whatsoever. So there's a part of you, a big part of you, that knows that you are fully capable of going out there and doing whatever you want to do because you are a full human being who can think and act at the same level as everyone else. But you know nothing about the world. You know absolutely nothing. You do not know what it's like to pay taxes. You don't know what it's like to have fallen in love. You don't know what it's like to raise kids. That's the only difference. But it's a pretty important distinction. And so there's this vast resentment about the fact that you are capable of doing something, but people don't treat you as if you are capable of doing something. You know what I mean? And I think that's where the resentment of teenagers comes from. Because the thing that you have to learn, and the thing that teenagers don't understand yet, is the most important lesson of all, which is it's not about you. It's not about you, dude. It's not about you. And that's a really, that's a really horrible lesson to have to learn, really, like, isn't it? Is, is That's the hardest one of all. It's not about you. But the older you grow, the more you realize as you have kids, as you meet someone who, who means more to you than you do to you, it's not about you. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the whole problem with all of this. I want to do what I want to do. Great. It's not about you. <laughs> It's not really about anyone in particular. It's about everyone. None of us is special. None of us is put here for any particular reason other than as a part of the whole. We are a species, not a bunch of individuals. We're all connected. We all matter. But we only matter because we're without everyone else. If, we were, if there was just one human, we wouldn't matter. We'd be nothing. And that would be a terrible way to live, wouldn't it? If only one person on the whole planet mattered, how lonely would that be? So, so yeah, that's the big lesson that teenagers have yet to learn. And it's so hard, I think, that a great many people refuse to learn it. Yeah. Well, then it's a bit of an existential crisis, isn't it? I remember your youngest sister, Keely, she still remembers the time when she was about six. I don't know what she'd been doing. 
I'd sent her to her room and I went in and said to her when she'd been in there for a little while and said to her, Keely, the world does not revolve around you. And she says she remembers spending the next few days at school trying to figure out, well, who did the world revolve around then if it wasn't her? She said, I remember thinking, is it Gracie, her best friend? Or is it her over there? She couldn't figure it out. I mean, and, it, and that's the thing. I think you can you can trace back different kind of stages of learning about that. Like when you're a kid, for instance, something that I, I actually bring up in conversation a lot more than I should is, is that bit when you're a kid, when you realize that other people have feelings as well. And up until that point, you kind of just assumed that everything in the whole wide world is one of two things. It's either something that you can interact with or it's like a rock. That's everything. And then you realize that there are other people around, you know, who have feelings just like yours and that all this time you've been hurting their feelings as much as your feelings hurt when you're hurt. And that's like, that's a crashing, resounding finding to have. I, I specifically remember finding out that other people have feelings because I remember you'd cooked us dinner. Cannot remember specifics. You'd cooked us dinner and none of us wanted to eat it. Uh, I'm an adult now and I have done that several times and it's fine, honestly, from the adult's perspective. But to a kid to realize that other people have feelings, that's, that, it hurts a lot, doesn't it? It's like it's when you're born and you touch the air for the first time, it's nothing to an adult. But imagine how much that must hurt to a baby. You know what I mean? So that's the first kind of stage is in, in it's not about you is when you realize other people have feelings. And then the second time is when you're a teenager and you realize it's not about you because, you know, everything that you think is, is special and individual about you has already been done. We aren't inherently special. And then, of course, the third stage is what we call the midlife crisis, where people realize that everything that they do you know, it doesn't really kind of that will never stand the test of time. Nothing goes according to plan. There's a bunch of, of harsh lessons that people learn. And I think the, the more they put off the teenager lesson, the harder the midlife crisis is. But, you know, I have my own theories about that. Have yet to do a midlife crisis, but I'll let you know. But that's kind of it's the same lesson over and over and over again. It's not about you. So uh, and so the choice is, is the kindness that I'm giving about me? Or about other people. I think that's the difference between niceness and kindness. The thing about living in a community is that it is the ultimate type of variation, I should say, of learning that lesson. When you live in a community, in a family or a group of friends, and you really truly kind of love them, and you realize that it's not about you, you realize it's not about any of them in particular either. It's about all of you. And so the focus turns from people to uh, being things, to doing things. You know what I mean? And so the people who talk about allowing them, them to do things, about freedoms and things like that, rings false to anyone who has ever met another human being and realized that it's not about them. Because people make terrible decisions. Make terrible decisions. We're terrible at making decisions. It's awful. We cannot be trusted. We can only be trusted, I think, when things have gone through a particular process, when we decide as a group that this is the best thing to do. You know, democracy is a good example of that. Fascism may be great on paper, but there's the tiny, incy-bincy little problem with it that people can't be trusted. 
It's the same with communism. Honestly, great idea on paper. People cannot be trusted. And it's the same with this. I want to do what I want to do. Great. You're allowed to want to do what you want to do. But it's not about you. You've got to do as you're told. We all have to do as we're told because we're all telling ourselves to do it. It's not one person telling us. Like people, That's the thing. People will attack leaders and make it out as if the leaders are the only people who are telling us what to do. But the way our society functions is they tell us what to do because they are a mouthpiece for us as a population. We are all telling ourselves to do this thing. We are not a fascist di- di- dictatorship. People who talk about in, in Victoria, Dan Andrews, they call him dictator Dan. That's not how this works. Have you been paying attention? That's, we all have to do what we all have to do. Talking about, I want to be allowed to do this is fine. That is, allowing you to do that would be nice because it's treating you as if you are important. Kindness treats you as if you are as important as everyone else. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up was, was the paradox of tolerance, which uh, is an ongoing kind of uh, discussion about what it means to be allowed to exist in a society that started, I think, I mean, it started a really, really long time ago, but was really kind of formulated and compiled in 1945 by an American Jewish philosopher of science whose name that I cannot remember right now. But I can we'll, we'll put it in the, in the comments if, if you want. Very, very interesting stuff. He talks about the paradox of tolerance. And it means that a society that is tolerant um, without borders is a society that will ultimately become intolerant. Because tolerating intolerance means that you are intolerant by definition. For a society to be truly tolerant, you need to be intolerant of intolerance. You cannot allow hatred to flourish. And the people who say things like, oh, everyone's entitled to their opinion, feeding into that paradox of tolerance. I want to be nice by allowing them to speak. That is not the same as kindness. You are helping a small group of people. But by doing that, by extension, you are making our whole society more intolerant by allowing them to exist. And look, there are, are some examples in which difference of opinion is definitely encouraged. Democracy, for instance. And there is a platform for that in this particular problem. People who stand up in the Senate and say, I genuinely do not think this is a good idea. That's, that's a great reaction to this. Rioting in the streets without masks in the centre of Melbourne when it's under lockdown and after curfew is really only demonstrating the fact that you, you're not listening. It's not demonstrating that you have a point. It's demonstrating you can't be trusted to do the right thing. It's demonstrating um, disrespect. It's disrespect yeah. for other people. And, and I think that's, that's the thing. We, we have a system in place that allows you to demonstrate what your opinion is. And the people who are disrespectful of that system, who don't understand that system, um, who are intolerant of that system, are the ones who are eating away at it, I think. And, and it, the more people talk about kindness to them, the shakier that foundation becomes. It started a few years ago with a certain democracy, undermining uh, the legitimacy of certain processes. And it, it extends to this day. In, in order to be tolerant, we have to know where the line is. You know, 
you need to know where that border is. Where does kindness end and hatred begin? I think personally, the line is somewhere before let's reopen the economy and let everyone die. It's just my opinion. I think it's the majority's opinion. And we have a democracy that, that really kind of says that I, I'm correct about that. But the intolerance in intolerance, intolerance, intolerance is, is something to think about whenever you're making a decision about allowing people's opinions. That's really interesting, that intolerance, the, the tolerance paradox, isn't it? The paradox of tolerance, yeah. yeah. That made <laughs> a lot of sense to me because it, it does show, like they, they've actually shown that it will destroy a society that is too tolerant of views that go against its own core, it mm-hmm. will destroy it eventually. Yes, and, and they will. And that's not to say that you need a rigidly controlled society where no one is allowed to air their opinions. It's just that we need a structure by which we discuss these things. And we do. We, we have a democracy. Admittedly, our, our democracy is deeply flawed and controlled by the rich. But that's the discussion for another day. And it's not really relevant right now. Um, <laughs> it's really predictable, that one, dude. <laughs> We'd better finish up there. Thank you so much. No worries at all. Thank you for letting me ramble. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.